Ho mai, haere mai. Welcome to the Maxim Institute podcast. My name is Jason Heal. I'm the communications manager at Maxim Institute. On the 4th of November this year, Maxim Institute, in partner with the Free Speech Union, hosted international human rights advocate and free speech expert Jacob Michingama. Jacob is the founder of the Justitia Institute, the Copenhagen-based human rights think tank. Having written and narrated the podcast Clear and Present Danger, A History of Free Speech, and authored Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media, Jacob is a prominent and experienced figure in the free speech space. In this presentation, Jacob offers some historical context to our current free speech climate, outlining some of the dangers he sees in limiting free speech and responding to questions from the audience. We are pleased to present this recording of the event to you. We hope that you will find it insightful, instructive, and challenging. Thank you so much, uh, Tim and, and Jonathan, and, and, and all of you being here. As you mentioned, Jonathan, we've been uh, working uh, hard over the last uh, past days, uh, and uh, I've, I've really uh, been, been taken in by this country, by the people I've, I've met. Everyone has been extremely welcoming and, and, and generous and, and positive. Uh, one one visit at, at 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 the mosque may not have gone as as well as we as, as we had hoped, but uh, but 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 other than that, it was it was actually uh, it has been a, a really a great experience. Uh, my one regret, of course, is that I haven't been able to experience the beautiful uh, nature of this country. But being set in this amazing scenery uh, compensates somewhat uh, uh, for that. Um, so um, I'll try to say some some general things about free speech and try to provide maybe a historical perspective on the times that we're living in. So if you were to go back to the 1990s and, and maybe uh, all the way up into the early 20th, uh, 20th, 21st century, you would say that that was a golden age of free speech. So it was a time where um, authoritarian, totalitarian uh, dictatorships had collapsed. It was uh, sort of the cusp of the third wave of democratization uh, and where uh, new communications technology was helping defeat uh, authoritarian states. And we all, at least many of us, believed that free speech uh, empowered by, uh, by new communications technology would make censorship obsolete and, uh, and, and usher in an unstoppable wave of, of freedom uh, and democracy. Um, uh, but things have, have turned out rather differently. Um, we're still living, I would say, in a golden age compared to 100 or 200 years ago. Um, the ability of being able to communicate instantaneously with people uh, around the world is, of course, uh, a great practical exercise uh, of free speech that, that people in, in, in previous generations could, could only have dreamt of. But I would argue that we're still in a... Uh, that, that the golden age is in decline, that we are, that we are actually living through what I call a, a free speech recession. And, and why do I say that? Well, uh, there are some obvious signs. Um, authoritarian states uh, have reverse engineered the technology that uh, was supposed to 
uh, to usher in this, uh, uh, or to cement the golden age, uh, China is my, maybe the, the, the best example of a country that has uh, used technology to supercharge um, surveillance uh, and censorship at an unprecedented scale uh, in, in many ways, in, in, in ways that uh, would have, uh, th that exceeds uh, George Orwell's uh, 1984 in, 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 the, in the scope of, of censorship and, uh, and surveillance. But uh, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that authoritarian states use uh, censorship. That is in their DNA. So free speech originated in the Athenian democracy some 2,500 years ago. Uh, and when the Athenian democracy was overthrown on a couple of occasions, the very first things that wealthy oligarchs who didn't uh, appreciate sharing power with the, with the unwashed mob did was to do away with, with free speech. So it's in, you know, on, uh, the first page, on the, the one-on-one for, for uh, aspiring dictators is to do away with free speech. But more worryingly, perhaps, is the fact that open liberal democracies are also uh, restricting uh, free speech and that free speech has come to be seen as much as a threat as the a guarantee uh, when it comes to, to, to freedom uh, and democracy. And, and democratic leaders um, are now spending considerable energy thinking about how to limit uh, free speech. Um, so a good example which I think demonstrates this is go back to 2006. And a young uh, first-term senator from Illinois called Barack Obama uh, was a pioneer in using the internet and, and social media. And he's, he praised the role of the internet, which allowed him to say what he wanted without censorship and bypass um, uh, traditional gatekeepers. And, and, and Barack Obama used, uh, he won sort of the, the so-called Facebook generation uh, uh, in two very successful uh, elections that I'm sure you, you, you may have covered, Tim, and, and which I think energized a lot of uh, Americans who might otherwise have been turned off by politics. Um, but fast forward to 2020, and Obama called uh, the internet uh, and disinformation the single greatest threat against uh, democracy. And that, uh, I think, illustrates uh, something that a lot of leaders, uh, including the prime minister of this country, uh, has, has said some of the same things. Now, that does not mean that Barack Obama or the prime minister of New Zealand want to institute a totalitarian state, but it means that they want to recalibrate perhaps the relationship between uh, free speech uh, and democracy uh, uh, in a way where perhaps governments should have more say over what is being shared and said, especially uh, on, on social media. And I think one of the reasons uh, for this is an ancient phenomenon which I call elite panic. So elite panic uh, tends to break out every time the the public sphere is democratized, is expanded, and those who are the traditional gatekeepers or have institutional authority, their uh, authority is, is upended, turned on its head. They no longer have the same ability to act as gatekeepers of, of the public sphere. And so a, a very good example of that is, of course, the printing press. Now, if you go back to the printing press, initially the Catholic Church was actually very enthusiastic about it because it allowed them to spread the message uh, more easily, more consistently. However, uh, a German monk came along, a rather ornery man called Martin Luther with his own ideas about, uh, about what is the truth of uh, Christianity. Uh, and of course, suddenly the Catholic Church thought that the printing press 
was uh, an abomination. Um, but we see the same thing uh, later on with, uh, with, with the printing, uh, with, with the, the Telegraph, for instance. So in 1858, the New York Times wrote an editorial where they called uh, the, oceanic, the transatlantic uh, oceanic uh, telegraph for too, too fast and unsifted for the truth. So there was no need you know, to be able to, 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 to send information from, from, uh, from Europe to America in a matter of minutes when it could have been done in a couple of weeks. You know, why, you know, that, that undermined everything. Uh, and, and so this is a, a, a recurring phenomenon, but it's also a phenomenon uh, that is, has been used whenever, for instance, uh, minorities, be they racial, religious, or uh, women for that matter. I know you have a very proud history in, 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 in providing vote to women. And, and, and of course, free speech petitions were, were instrumental uh, in that fight. Uh, and, and the flip side of that is that censorship and repression has always been uh, the instrument in which those who are the powerful, who, those who are the elite, try to keep out those who are deemed to uh, too fickled, uh, too ignorant, and too dangerous to be allowed uh, a voice in uh, in public affairs, and um, so we should perhaps, looking back through history, we should perhaps not be surprised that the age of our, our current digital age has seen elite panic return with a vengeance, and that suddenly those uh, um, democratically elected leaders who are subject. Uh, to, to being scrutinized 24-7 on, on, on platforms, and also the traditional media who no longer acts as, uh, as the sole gatekeepers of, of what is relevant and what is truth, uh, have turned against the idea of unmediated uh, uh, free speech. So, so, so that is one important driver, I think, uh, of, of the free speech recession. And the, the, the critical thing about that is when democracies no longer play a strong countervailing force towards the inevitable tendency of authoritarian states to want to, to, to limit free speech, then free speech at the global level really tends to suffer. Uh, we really need democracies to come together and stand up for principle. If they don't do that, uh, dissidents in other countries will suffer. And we actually uh, see a, a very unhealthy cross-fertilization of various censorship regimes uh, across uh, regime types. So let me give you an example. Germany in 2017 adopted a law which said that large social media platforms had to remove illegal content within 24 hours or risk fines of up to 50 million euros. So my institution did a, a, a report where we found that countries including Russia, Belarus, uh, Turkey, uh, Venezuela, um, copy-pasted this German president. Of course, they did it in bad faith. They, uh, they, they, they used it to outlaw swaths of speech that we were protected in Germany, but they did it with explicit reference to this German model. And what does that do? It makes it very difficult for democracies to criticize this development because you can't do it on a principled ground. Uh, uh, even if you say, well, yes, we have that law in Germany, but we, uh, we, we do it differently from you in Turkey and, and, and Venezuela. The fact that you could actually point to the most influential democracy in, in, in Europe, uh, having those kinds of laws uh, gives you leeway uh, as an authoritarian state. It, it gives you what aboutery points uh, and, and, and justifications. On the other hand, I also think that we see um, that um, big authoritarian states, as they gain more geopolitical clout, are able 
to influence what can be said, for instance, at universities uh, in, uh, in, in, in the West, uh, but also in the public sphere. So in Denmark, we have had a big scandal where uh, when Chinese dignitaries visited our country, the police actively suppressed pro-Tibetan and Falun Gong uh, protesters. So they would confiscate flags, they would shield protesters. Now this wasn't a violation of our constitution, mind you, but this was an, 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 a policy that was instituted for over a decade. And I, I think that shows that when democracies are not willing to stand up to principle uh, and to stand, you know, they risk subverting their own values. Uh, uh, and is that worth a trade deal with China? Um, maybe in the short run, but certainly not in the long run if you're concerned about your, your um, democratic um, governance. Um, so another driver, I think, of the free speech recession is this idea, this well-intentioned idea, that free speech and equality are values that are mutually exclusive, or at least in conflict, whereas I would say that the historical record shows that free speech and equality are values that are mutually reinforcing. In fact, I would say that free speech might be the most powerful engine of human equality that we've ever stumbled upon uh, as a species. Uh, and why would I say that? Well, let's, uh, let's look at the record. Uh, take um, the issue uh, of uh, slavery, uh, for instance, in, in, in the United States. So if you go back to the 1830s, if you uh, were to argue against slavery, if you were an abol abolitionist, uh, then, and, and you were in Virginia, or you were in Alabama, that would be formally the death penalty for arguing against uh, slavery. And in fact, white slave owners in these countries, <laughs> in these states, would, would argue that, uh, that abolitionists were inciting the slaves uh, through hatred uh, against white slave owners and were maliciously uh, libeling slave owners. So it was a, a sort of a, a form of hate speech turned on its head. Um, we saw the same thing during segregation uh, in the South, where in southern states the civil rights movement was brutally uh, suppressed, and where um, the civil rights movement actually was one of the, the instruments for expanding free speech uh, in the U.S. So John Lewis, who was a, a congressman and a civil rights leader who was arrested on numerous times, one of them for, for, for protesting with a sign in Dallas which said, one man, one vote, um, said that without free speech and the right to dissent, the civil rights movement would have been a bird without wings. Now, there are other examples that might resonate more uh, in this country, so the British colonialism. If you were to ask the British in uh, the 19th century, they would say, well, we have brought press freedom to all our dominions and the sun will never set on press freedom. Uh, but the reality was, of course, very different. So take someone like Mahatma Gandhi, uh, who, of course, led the, uh, the nationalist movement in, in India. In 1921, he was sentenced to six years in prison for sedition, for writing uh, peaceful uh, newspaper articles um, arguing for Indian independence. And in his trial speech, which I, I, I heartily recommend, um, Gandhi said that every man should be free to criticize any system or person as long as they didn't incite or contemplate violence. In fact, Gandhi said that free speech and association were uh, the lungs that were absolutely necessary uh, for a man to breathe the air of, of liberty. And that to me, again, shows something. First of all, it shows that, 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 that 
that free speech has been used by those who were uh, oppressed and at censorship and repression by those who were the oppressors. But also this idea that free speech is a uniquely Western concept that is not applicable to, to, to non-Western uh, countries and cultures is, is, is completely false. In fact, it has been absolutely essential uh, for those, uh, for many communities who, uh, who were non-Western. Uh, and of course, it is, uh, in my opinion, uh, a, uh, a universalizable value. It might not be universally recognized everywhere, but it is something that, 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 that um, can be instituted universally and that we should strive to. And that is not uh, something, if you give, if you institute free speech in a country, it is not akin to imposing values on that society. It is it's, it's, it's akin to empowering uh, uh, those uh, communities. Now, finally, I will talk about what, what, what Jonathan briefly mentioned. Um, how do you secure free speech? Um, and here, my conclusion is that ultimately, free speech depends on a flourishing culture of free speech. That goes back to the, to the Athenian concept of parousia, which meant, meant something like uninhibited speech. So that was a commitment to social dissent as something being positive for, uh, for, for the demos in the uh, Athenian uh, democracy. And basically, I think, at its most fundamental level, free speech really is the antithesis of violence. It means that we can, you know, we can have uh, profound philosophical, religious, political differences, but we can still be citizens, spouses, neighbors, friends, colleagues, neighbors, and we can come and settle our differences in peace rather than go to war as we did <laughs> previously. Uh, we, can, we can love each other uh, and disagree. And, we can, we, uh, and so in a sense, we need radical free speech enable, in order to be able to compromise and be pragmatic because we need to have all aspects uh, and discuss all aspects of, of, of a problem in order to, to be pragmatic uh, uh, and compromise. And how do we ensure a, a, a robust and vibrant culture of free speech. That's, I think, is, is, uh, is a huge question. I don't have all the answers. But I've been sort of impressed with uh, the laws, as I understand them in this country, are very similar to laws, for instance, in England. But where in England, laws uh, about incitement to hatred are being used much more proactively to police uh, public opinion, those laws in this country have been used very, very sparingly and have been interpreted in a very speech protective manner. And that to me suggests that you have a strong underlying commitment to a culture of free speech and that so many Kiwis protested against the idea of a hate speech law, uh, even though uh, that does not mean that ordinary Kiwis are in favor or condone uh, hate speech, that you're actually able to distinguish between defending a principle of free speech and, and at the same time distancing yourself from views that you find abhorrent, I think uh, is a very healthy sign. And it is my, my, my hope that you, even if you're a, a small a nation, you, you can be sort of a beacon of how democracies should handle difficult questions about where to draw the line by rejecting these misguided, uh, however well-intentioned proposals to try and police uh, extreme speech and show that you can be a successful, diverse, 
a multiracial society based on democracy and the rule of law with respect for each other, regardless of your ethnicity, uh, skin color, and religion, without having to resort to the state to punish those who say uh, mean things. Uh, if you can do that, uh, the rest of us will owe you uh, a big favor. Uh, so we'll, we'll look to you to, uh, to lead the way forward. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jacob. And I now find myself in the highly ironic uh, predicament of announcing rules for questions uh, at an event celebrating uh, free speech. Uh, look, we do want it to be free, open, and vigorous. Um, so it's kind of a, it's a pub situation. Uh, you can uh, offer one question. You do get one supplementary, but at the risk of uh, having someone just bang on about what they've read for a thousand years. Uh, I'm gonna, I'll cut you off after the supplementary. I'm sorry, it's just to keep things moving. Vitality uh, indicates a certain amount of, shall we say, freedom. So those are the rules. If you can shout them out, I'll repeat it so that uh, everyone can hear it, and then I'll, I'll throw it uh, to Jacob to, uh, to answer. So, who has a question? At, at the back, Ward, yes, go ahead. Jacob, thank you. The, um line that you used before was that speech is a great antidote, free speech is a great antidote to violence. Unfortunately, the counter that's coming through nowadays is that speech is violence. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I, I think that's a very dangerous proposition. Now, that, that does not mean speech can lead to violence. Uh, you, you could not have, uh, you, you couldn't have had medieval pogroms against Jews without speech. You couldn't have had genocides because you need to dehumanize a, a, a specific group. You need to incite people. You couldn't have had the Christchurch massacre without speech. Uh, so speech can lead to harm, but that does not mean that speech uh, is akin uh, to violence. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a very, there's a, you know, I think most people would agree, you know, if you really dig into it, you know, if I was to say something uh, nasty to you, uh, Tim, uh, there's a difference between that and me punching you in the face. Uh, <laughs> and, but that, again, it doesn't mean that hurt, words can't hurt. Sometimes words can hurt a lot, uh, you know, um, uh, they, they, they can, but it's certainly not the same uh, as, as violence. So if you, you know, that, that would mean that uh, heated debate in, in, in a democracy, in a parliament, that was akin to violence. But it's, it's the antithesis of, of that, isn't it? I mean, the fact that you can have, you can, you can really disagree about, you can have heated discussions about the future direction of this country, but you settle those differences through, through speech, appealing uh, and, and proposing different ideas, and then ordinary citizens get a chance to vote on that, and you accept that those who have convinced the majority get three years to, uh, to, 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 to try and get it right. And then, uh, you, you, and one of the reasons you accept it is that when those who you, you don't support are in power, you get to vehemently criticize them and come up with alternative proposals and you get a chance to, uh, to, to, to do things uh, the way that, that, that you think it. So, so I think uh, this idea that, that that, that words are, are equal violence uh, is, a, is, is deeply misguided. But that is not to say that free speech doesn't come with harms and costs. It does, but it also comes with huge benefits. And I think there's unfortunately a tendency 
in mature democracies to take the benefits for granted and focus almost myopically on the, on, on the dark sides. I'm, I'm interested in following up on that. Why do you think this is happening in mature liberal democracies? Because, you know, very few of us, uh, and, you know, uh, have, have had to fight for it or have lived in times where, where, where we faced any real serious consequences uh, for, 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 for speaking out. So there, you know, and, and this is, the concept of free speech entropy, as I call it in the book, that you know, free speech is never ultimately won or, or lost. It's a, it's a continuous uh, process. And also, I think, you know, in many ways, free speech is a counterintuitive principle to, to social uh, beings as, as human beings. We want to belong. We want to conform. Uh, and it's a very, you know, when, when people say things that you find uh, conflict with your deepest convictions, uh, and you th might even threaten the values that you that you hold the most dear. It's a very abstract principle trying to uphold free speech, saying that's important. And we are very good at creating these elaborate justifications for why restricting free speech on this particular narrow issue is not really restricting free speech. It's actually safeguarding uh, free speech. It's protecting other people, Jack. Exactly. It's providing the basis for functioning uh, of free speech. It's what I call Milton's curse after John Milton, the, the famous English poet who wrote the Areopagitica in, in 1644, protesting pre-publication censorship. It's a very eloquent work, great arguments. The only problem is, when you read it carefully, John Milton does not mean press freedom for Catholics. He does not mean press freedom for radical Protestants. He does not mean uh, uh, um, press freedom for those who viciously attack the government. It's basically press freedom for mainline Protestant sects. Uh, and, and that's a pretty narrow conception of, uh, of, of free speech. And, 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 and most sort of great free speech advocates, including Voltaire and others, have had this very... Uh, unprincipled uh, approach to, to free speech, which is very human. And, and I think we are all likely to have our biases, and, but, but we need to be aware of it, uh, at least, so that we can try and stay on the, on the, on the narrow path of, of, of principled uh, free speech protections. Chuck. Yes, I've noticed the difference with uh, the way free speech for Christians and Muslims are treated differently. I've noticed a bit in Australia, it's been highlighted. Israel Falau, he gets treated a lot differently than a Muslim that refuses to wear a gay pride thing. They say, okay, we'll let you not wear it. But I just wondered what your view is on that. Yeah, I think it depends on, on which country. In Denmark, actually, you know, that one of the reasons I got into free speech was uh, in 20, 2005, a Danish newspaper commissioned a number of cartoons depicting the Muslim prophet Muhammad, and that kicked off sort of a, a global battle of values over the relationship between free speech and religion. And suddenly, a lot of, a lot of people on the secular liberal left who saw themselves as sort of the ears of the Enlightenment, traditionally very, very critical of a religious authority, suddenly said, well, free speech has its limits when it comes to minorities. And I, that was confusing to me. And people on the, on the right were free speech absolutists. Then we had a center-right government, and uh, due to problems with immigration, terrorist attacks, and so on, there was a mood that free, religious free speech of Muslims should be, uh, should, should be limited. And a number of laws were enacted that actually curtailed uh, free speech of, 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 and suddenly you saw the right saying, well, this is a good idea, we need to, <laughs> and the left was saying, oh, this is outrageous. Uh, so, so uh, but, but I think you, what you're pointing at is that, again, th there's this tendency for some who, to say, 
oh, well, Muslims are a minority within the West. In order to ensure tolerance and respect, we need to have certain limits on, on what the majority can say uh, 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 about minorities, which I think is, um, is, is deeply misguided. It's a, it's a form of bigotry of lower expectations uh, in, in the one sense, saying that Muslims are, require a different treatment. They're somehow inherently less capable uh, of being subjected to criticism uh, uh, than others. And it's also, you know, Islam is not a sort of a fringe faith. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a huge faith with, with a, faith with, with a lot of members. And, and unfortunately, in the vast majority of Islamic majority countries, you don't have freedom of expression. You don't have freedom of, uh, of religion. And there are tenets uh, of Islam that are, um, that are intolerant and that should be openly criticized in, in, in democracies. Uh, that, that, I think, is the only way uh, to to, um, to 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 go about it, um, yeah. So I don't know if that was it. I think you've made a um, you've helped me make a connection in the sense that you you said earlier that um, that it's uh, free speech protects minorities. Yeah. And often minorities will expect express minority views, minor, minoritarian views. So they'll say things that the nice agreeable mass find repellent yeah, because yeah. they're not a member of that mass. Yeah, um, and, that, and, and that's really the why you, I mean, in many ways, if you're a, a member of a, uh, of a dominant majority, you don't really need free speech protections, right? Because everyone agrees with you, so, so there's no, no one is going to persecute you. Uh, um, so, so, so that's why free speech ha has been developed also to, to really protect uh, minorities, both religious, uh, political, uh, uh, and, uh, and so on. So, uh, and, and, and again, uh, you know, the, the examples are, are so many of, 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 of various minorities who have benefited from, uh, from free speech and, and the, t the major majoritarian tendencies to limit free speech of, of inconvenient uh, minorities. We've had, thank you very much, because these guys have been overrepresented. I'm glad the other side is coming forward. Um, go ahead, please. Jacob, when we put our head up in this country, uh, we tend to get knocked down, particularly if you're a minority and a woman. Uh, it is easy to knock us down and label us, and we have no way of actually countering uh, what is being said. Do we accept it, or do we just keep going? which is what I do, but that's yeah. beside the point. It just seems to be grossly unfair yeah. that someone can be publicly abusive and get away with it, and the media allow them to, Tim. I think, unfortunately... I'm not in the media anymore. <laughs> I, 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 I think, uh, you know, the price for speaking up in the debate is that you sometimes risk getting uh, vilified. Uh, you know, I think that's an unavoidable price. I don't think it's, it's, it's something that should be an ideal. I, uh, I, I'm all in favor of having a recent uh, debate, but I cannot say that I've never written something on social media that uh, I, I may not have regretted uh, afterwards, especially if I've had a few beers and it's late uh, and Arsenal just lost. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but, but, but I think, you know, of course, if it's threats and outright intimidation, that's one thing. But, you know, if it's if you're if you're speaking out uh, as as someone who has an unpopular political view, and there are people 
who sort of do pylons, that unfortunately is not something that you can regulate your way out of without, without undermining free speech. But what you can, of course, try to do is mobilize people who might think like you, but who feel intimidated, who, who dare not raise up their voice. And that's really what free speech and, 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 and related freedoms like freedom of association and, and freedom of assembly allows you to do, to come out in strength and say, we will not be silenced, we will not be intimidated. Fantastic. The next meeting will be held at the Communist Party headquarters tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jacob McIntyre. Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us and keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the team at Maxim, Mā Wa, goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.